Okay, Genesis 42, we're going to see uh, Joseph's accusation of his brothers next week. Andrew is going to be taking it and guiding us through the brothers' return. Joseph sees Benjamin, and then in two weeks, Jeff will be teaching on Genesis 43. Okay, having done all the administrative, and I think we're ready, let's seek the Lord and seek His favor. And Lord, we do seek you. We humble ourselves, quieting our hearts. And Father, we just acknowledge that if you should mark iniquities, none of us could stand. But we thank you that there is forgiveness with you. Father, the sacrifice you you seek are are broken spirits and and contrite hearts. Lord, indeed, heaven is your, your throne, the earth is your footstool. And we thank you that That this is to whom you look, the one that's poor and humble, broken and contrite, and trembles at your word. And Father, may we we be marked by being sobered by your word. Father, you've graciously assured us that those who conceal their transgressions will not prosper, but those who confess and forsake sin will obtain mercy. Lord, in your word, your mirror, we we see our guilt, but also in your word, we see our solution, our substitute, our Savior. Father, guide us as we look at your word and and open up this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Merriam-Webster defines guilt as the state of one who has committed an offense, especially consciously. You could say he's got guilt written all over his face. It's also known as a feeling of deserving blame for offenses, being racked with guilt, so to speak. We're going to visit some folks today in our look at the text who are dealing with guilt. Now, as the holiday schedule would have it, we've been three weeks since we've been together. And for three, three weeks, we've left ten brothers in an Egyptian prison. Now, during Christmas, you probably didn't think much about these ten brothers while we were considering Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, but, but we're going to go back and look at these, these ten brothers, and we thank, thank for the whole counsel of God and, and a chance to look at these latter chapters of Genesis. So just how did these ten brothers end up in an Egyptian prison? Well, going back to our review, we've been in uh, Life of Joseph for, for several weeks now. You know, in chapter 37, we saw Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was the, the dreamer, right? And uh, he had these dreams about the sheaves of everybody else bowing down to him. Also a dream about the sun, moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to him. He liked this dream. His brothers did not. Uh, they plotted against him to, to kill this dreamer. Um, and then, and mercifully, so to speak, alternatively, to sell the dreamer to the Ishmaelites who traded him in Egypt. Chapter 39, we saw Joseph's success in Egypt as the steward of Potiphar. Um, he was seduced by Potiphar's wife, falsely accused, um, and then imprisoned. In chapter 40, we saw him interpreting dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And he successfully interpreted them, um, but then he was forgotten. Two years went by of being forgotten. 
In chapter 41, Pharaoh himself has a dream. Seven cows, seven ears of corn, what does that mean? Nobody, none of his magicians could, could interpret it. Then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He says, I know this guy. All right, Joseph interprets it, the seven years, good years, and then the seven other, other years are, are famine. Sam, famine is coming, right? And so Joseph devises a plan on how to deal with the famine, to store food and then to distribute food. Joseph then made a ruler by Pharaoh. He's age 30 at this time. Genesis 41, 56 says this, When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. That brings us to chapter 42, where Jeff opened it up for us our last time together. And Jeff had mentioned then that he had set the stage, so to speak. In fact, he even talked about teeing it up. I was a little nervous when he started talking about that, but this is what he, what he showed. And you'll remember this slide, and I like this slide, right? There's Jeff, the placeholder, and, and getting it ready for me. But I was relieved because that's not what I thought he might show. I was expecting something more like, more like this uh, from Jeff. But no, Jeff has done well. He, we're set, stages set to, to, to move on. And so... Let's look at uh, 42, and just to get the flow, let's, let's read starting 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some, of, from, buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then Joseph the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly and said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefeated parts of the land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as you said, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you will not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested. 
whether there is truth in you, but if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Joseph spoke harshly, acted harshly, then forcibly detained them for three days. It would be hard to comprehend the, the, the fear that they were experiencing as they, as they waited. They probably didn't know for how long they would wait. Now notice that Joseph didn't immediately send a brother to go get Benjamin, but let all ten brothers wait in prison. Now why the wait? What, perhaps giving Joseph time to think about his decision and whether he wants to amend it or refine it. Also to give the brothers time to think. And why, what would they be thinking about? They'd be thinking about, well, who, who should we send? Which one of us should we send to go ask for Benjamin? And you'd have to wonder if you're one of the ten brothers, which brother you'd want to be. Would you be one, want to be left behind, staying in Egypt, right? Or would you like to be the one to go tell dad that you need to bring Benjamin back to, to Egypt? Well, we're going to make eight observations looking at our text starting in verse 18 that continues to advance this story. First, we're going to look at Joseph's resolution. And just a spoiler, today's lesson is going to be brought to you by the letter R. So, uh, and I know Jeff is pleased that I'm trying to alliterate. That's very close to illiterate. I, it, <laughs> never mind, I don't want to go there. Um, so if you write a letter R in each of the blanks, you, you're going to score points, right? And, uh, but let's look at verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, then let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. Basically, better it says, where, be confined where you are in custody. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Why? So your words may be verified and you will not die. And the text says they did so. Perhaps better rendering is they had then agreed to do so. By using a three-day period, Joseph has given himself time to think and he's given his brothers time to think. And he continues to mess with them, so to speak. Mess with their minds. Mess with their hearts. As ruler, he has the power to do so. By accusing them as, as spies, he's given himself every tool to be able to interrogate them. To question them, to imprison them, to yank their chains in every way. To see what's under the hood, so to speak. What are they thinking? What are their hearts like? And as a brother, he has a desire to do this in love. And what does Joseph resolve to do to ultimately decide? He's only going to keep one brother. Kent Hughes writes, Joseph decided that only one brother would have to stay as hostage while the other nine returned for Benjamin. Mercifully, this would allow them to carry adequate grain back to their families but it's also was suggestive of Joseph's original descent into Egypt. One brother was to remain in Egypt, and that subjected the brothers to a temptation familiar to Joseph. 
that temptation is, would they abandon another brother as they had once abandoned Joseph? And then Joseph does something else that's unexpected. He amazed and shocked his brothers by bringing God into the conversation. Elohim. Verse 18 said, Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. This is the first hint of tenderness from the Egyptian ruler. The first indication that he would be fair, not condemn them simply on suspicion. Now the brothers had not mentioned God once to them, to Joseph. And they're completely surprised by this that the Egyptian does. Not only does he not only mention God, but that he fears God. Now, if the brothers were having trouble getting a grip on their situation, certainly this now rocked them even more. That brings us to the brothers' penitent reflection. You know, we don't know how much discussion about guilt the brothers shared during their three days in prison. But we do know that now having been released, they are talking. Verse 21, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Why? Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Notice this is information we didn't have before, right? We, we now know that Joseph actually begged them to let him out back when they threw him into the, into the pit. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Commentator Kent Hughes speaks of experiencing the grace of guilt. When I was 19 years old, I was home for the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of, of college. And... Uh, I had a really rough freshman year, and I was really living a life that, that was not honoring to the Lord. I didn't like the way my life was going. But I'd gone out water skiing at a little small Kansas lake, and uh, we did that in the evening, and everybody else had gone back to town, but I stayed behind, and I was laying out on the dock, all right? And in western Kansas, you can see a lot of stars. And I tried to start thinking about how the stars got there. And all of a sudden, the blinders came off. And all I could think about was that there was a God and I had sinned against Him. And uh, it would be later before I would understand how to be made right with this God. But there under those stars, I understood that I was guilty before Him. I like Kent Hughes' explanation on experiencing the grace of guilt. He says, True guilt is a grace because it brings the guilty to seek forgiveness and to repent. Joseph's brothers were racked with guilt that in the context of the Bible put them in the way of grace. This was good guilt, healthy guilt, graced guilt. Without guilt, there could be no forgiveness and no resolution. And without guilt, they could never assume their covenant mantles yes they had said to one another truly we are guilty concerning our brother 
Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Or as the legacy standard says, Behold, his blood is required of us. This declaration is referring to the death penalty. Right? This is, was instituted um, during the covenant with Noah um, back in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And while the brothers were engaged in this intense exchange, they did not know, nor were they likely concerned, that the Egyptian might get word of it. Verse 23 says, They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Joseph remains in complete control. Not only is the ruler to ask tough interrogation questions, but feigning to need an interpreter, pretending to not understand Hebrew. Joseph did understand, and it moved him. We see Joseph's regard for his brothers, verse 24, because Joseph had tenderness and an empathy toward his brothers. He turned away from them and wept. You know, the ability to express deep emotion is a freedom that we should not allow to be robbed from us. My dad, though not a man to speak of God often, told me something as a young man that has stuck with me. He was a funeral director by trade and dealt with families in very difficult times, trying to help them navigate, make decisions. And regarding tears, my dad told me that they were God-given and should not be stifled. Now Joseph did not stifle his here, but he needed to hide them. Kent Hughes writes, He was so moved by their expression of guilt and remorse, that he could not control himself. And there would be more tears when he first saw Benjamin. We'll see that in chapter 43. When, he, when Judah offered to take Benjamin's place, chapter 45. And finally, when he meets his father in chapter 46. But the great revelation of his initial tears right here was that Joseph had to turn away from his brothers to hide his sorrow for the pain his strategy was bringing upon them. But Joseph was able to compose himself and get back to the plan of dealing sternly in love with his brothers. Brings us to Simeon's retention. Verse 24, but when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Why Simeon of all the brothers? Kenneth Matthews writes, after overhearing that Reuben came to Joseph's defense, Joseph may have passed over him, taking the second son in line. Moreover, there may have been a greater temptation to abandon Simeon by the others presuming that Jacob would be less agitated about his detention since Simeon had infuriated his father in the past. But having bound one brother, the rest are allowed to leave, bringing us to the release 
of the rest. Verse 25, Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. Now why would Joseph do this? Well, it could be that Joseph wanted to build up evidence to support the charge that they were indeed dishonest men. Or it could have been out of a concern to provide for his father and his brothers. Kenneth Matthews writes, This ambiguity reflects the mixed characterization the narrative projects for Joseph in general. Outwardly, he's hard, a hard interrogator, but inwardly, he is broken-hearted, a broken-hearted brother whose emotions he must restrain. More likely, his action was to test the men for use the similar tactic in deceiving them a second time, and we'll see this in chapter 44. Verse 26, So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank. This isn't the heart sinking of being disappointed. This is the heart sinking of losing hope. Matthew Henry penned, When men's spirits are sinking, everything helps to sink them. And they turn trembling to one another saying, What is this that God has done to us? You know, they may have struggled with the what is this, but they had no doubt as to the the why. Their expression, or the expression to each other, recalls their earlier admission back in verse 21 when they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. But now they explicitly attributed this calamity to God. What is this that God has done? They believed that their peril was due to the hand of God. And with the weight of this upon them, upon them the brothers arrive home and report to Jacob. Verse 29, When they came to to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. Well, almost all. Right In an effort to persuade Jacob to allow Benjamin to go to Egypt, they left out some of the details, right? Like being imprisoned for three days. And the Egyptians' threat to execute them. And the discovery of the money in the sack. But this is what they did share. They talked about the ruler's angry demeanor and their accusations of spying. They talked about their... their plea of innocence, and and also they talked about the ruler's test. And they said to their father Jacob, verse 30, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. It's interesting that these brothers are reporting again to Joseph, right, about this man who's the Lord over the land. Kind of reminiscent when they They went to Joseph before, 
I mean, Jacob before, and reporting Joseph's no more, right? And now they're back in front of him talking about Joseph without knowing they're talking about Joseph, but they're trying to explain why Simeon is not with them. This is, I just found that very, very interesting. Yep, they'd explained before that Joseph was torn by a beast. Now they're trying to explain why, why Simeon's left behind. And they went on to say, but we said to the Egyptian, we are honest men, we are not spies, we are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no longer alive. Legacy Standard says, one is no more. Literally, it's one is nothing. And perhaps that's the best rendering. I don't think they were saying they thought Joseph was dead, I don't think they, they believed that, but as any good word spin doctors, right, they could truthfully say, well, he's nothing, He's not part of our group anyway. Um, and then they conclude that, recalling to their dad that they had told the Egyptian, the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. They continue in verse 33, the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, said to us, by this I will know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. You know, it's of interest when they are recounting this experience and that Benjamin must go to Egypt. There's no recorded response here from Jacob. Sometimes when one hears disheartening, News, words don't come, but they will, as we'll see. Verse 35 says, Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. Now, can you imagine? It was sobering enough to find money in one sack, but the anguish now builds as bag after bag reveals the money that should have stayed in Egypt is in their bags, and surely they're going to be blamed for stealing it. And the text bears this out. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And the discovery of money in all the sacks drove the brothers to think the worst was absolutely happening. And that was the conclusion of their father Jacob as well. You know, what may have been a kindness from Joseph turned out to be a haunting weight upon these brothers. Matthew Henry writes, The very bundles of money which Joseph returned in kindness to his father frightened him. For he concluded it was done with some mischievous design or perhaps suspected his own sons to have committed some offense and so to have run themselves into a penalty which is intimated in what he says. And what does Jacob say? We're going to look at the response from Jacob. Their father Jacob said to them in verse 36, You have bereaved me of my children. Now this is a bereavement. Yes, it's an emotion, right? But it's, it's also 
The word bereaved means to deprive of a close relationship through death, to dispossess, to rob, to divest, to strip. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, he says. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? Jacob is unwittingly blaming the brothers for the loss of Joseph. He blames them for Simeon's predicament. And he is sure that they would lose Benjamin if given the opportunity. Benjamin, the new favorite in place of Joseph. And he laments. He says, all these things are against me. Yes, Jacob is is very self-centered, very self-focused. You know, it's the default of all of us when grief and stress can tend, tend to drive us inward rather than outward and upward. And Reuben, the firstborn, tries to comfort his distraught father with the most outlandish of comfort lines. Verse 37, Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care, and I will return him to you. Now that's quite a sobering offer. Feeling his father's anguish, Reuben, the oldest, makes an absurd promise. If something happens, Father, you may kill your two grandsons. And Jacob dismisses this illogical declaration. We're going to see the refusal of Jacob, verse 38. But Jacob said, My son Benjamin shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left Jacob laments, Benjamin alone is left. This declaration indicates a couple of things. It shows that Jacob still favors the sons of his beloved Rachel over all others. In his mind, even though he has had 12 sons, he's really had two sons. He'd lost Joseph, and he's clinging to Benjamin. But there's another reason, perhaps, that he is zeroed in on Benjamin and to seek to preserve him at all costs. As John Calvin writes, But the worst part of this burden was that the promise of God might prove illusory and vain, for he had no hope except from the promised seed. But he seemed to be bringing up devils at home, from whom a blessing was no more to be expected than life from death. He thought that Joseph was dead. He only had Benjamin left who had not been corrupted. How could the salvation of the world come from such a vicious offspring? He must therefore have been endowed with great perseverance seeing he did not stop relying on God. He was convinced that he cherished the church in his house even though there was scarcely any sign of it. This promise of God that that Calvin was referencing is the Abrahamic covenant. In in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From Genesis 12, this covenant passed to Isaac, passed to Jacob, Genesis 28. Ultimately, we know this was fulfilled in Christ, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. 
But with this track record of these ten brothers, Jacob likely felt that it would be through Benjamin that the promise would be fulfilled. And thus Benjamin must be protected at all costs. Verse 38 continues, If harm should befall Benjamin on the journey that you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. And the text concludes with Jacob's sorrow. Now, I don't have a fancy placeholder slide like Jeff did, indicating that I've teed this up for Andrew, but I, I, I do have a baton to pass to Andrew. Now, regarding application, a couple of them perhaps we can make. One is we can ask and should ask, are we experiencing the grace of guilt leading to repentance and faith? You know, we don't want to miss the opportunity to deal rightly with, with guilt. I like Costi Hinn's comments that I read recently. Remorse is feeling sad because sin is caught up with you. Repentance is a broken heart that is eager to surrender. Repentance and faith in Christ. So we remember our substitute, right? Because of Christ's work on the cross, right? We get credit for his life lived. You know, how he, how he worked, how he worshipped, how he dealt with others. We get credit for that. Kent Hughes writes on the experience in the grace of guilt. He says, perhaps your growing knowledge of God's word and your own heart is helping you understand and acknowledge your guilt. If so, embrace it because such an embrace can be, be a prelude to grace. Secondly, we can ask, what is foreboding in our life? You know, we shouldn't be quick to be melancholy about our circumstances. You know, was Jacob's lament justified? Well, did Jacob really know reality? He perceived that Joseph was no more and Simeon is not. The reality is that Joseph had been honored and Simeon and the brothers were about to be as well. He lamented, all these things are against me. But it proved otherwise. All was for him and his family. Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, called according to his purpose. Right? We don't often know in our situation what the Lord has. We assume the worst, but we don't know. Pastor and author Don Green has taught me when faced with perplexing circumstances that we need to discern true reality. Right? And that we do that by looking beyond present appearances. How things appeared to Jacob were not the reality. So we need to look beyond present appearances. We need to look to God's character. I like Philip de Corsi when he says, God is too kind to be cruel, too wise to make a mistake, and too deep to explain himself. 
So we look beyond present appearances, look to God's character, then we look to God's plan. Jacob knew that the plan of God for the nations would come through his line. He thought surely it must be through Benjamin. Who knew it would come through the line of of Judah? And we know how it ends. We know the big picture, right? For our own lives, right? We've got the, the word of God, right? We... We've got revelation. We know that we win, right? And, and we, we've, as we've said in the past uh, when we looked at, at Genesis, right? We look back and we see God's sovereign hand and we trust it. We look ahead, right? And as we study Revelation, we know the end and we trust it. We just have a very hard time trusting the sovereign hand of God while we're in it, right? And and our lives are like a piece of a, um, I want to say crossword, no, jigsaw puzzle, all right? Um, you may or may not like jigsaw puzzles, but they're, I know we've got some that do in my house. Um, but if you looked at a, a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle and he didn't have the box top, you'd have no idea what you were looking at, right? But once you get the, box top, then you can kind of go, oh, it kind of fits somewhere in here. And it's not till you get all the pieces that it all makes sense, right? Well, this is the box top for our life, right? And our lives fit within the sovereign hand of God. And so we can rely on that Uh, With every confidence that our trials, our joys, our heartaches, our bewilderment, they do fit within the sovereign purposes of God for His glory and our good. Father, we thank You and we praise You. Father, that You are sovereign over all things, that your eternal purposes cannot be thwarted. Father, in your design and maybe even in your, your great grace, you, you keep so much from us. Father, forgive us for assuming the worst about our situations. Father, for, forgive us when we, when we fret and... and look around rather than looking up. Father, we, we just don't know. Father, and what we do perceive as reality may not be the reality as all, at all. Just like Jacob didn't understand. He thought he knew, and he thought it was bad. And you were about to bless him tremendously just by what you had already ordained. Father, may we trust you. Father, we, we just pray that we wouldn't seek easy lives, but we would seek obedient lives and to seek to glorify you. And Father, also, we thank you for the, the grace of guilt. Father, it is, it's our guilt that, that you are holy and we are not that drives us to confess our sins, to to fall on our knees before you and acknowledge that that we have indeed 
sinned against you. And Father, we, uh, we love you. We love your word. We love the encouragement of your word. And we just pray that you would encourage us, Father, to, to, to trust you more, to see you more rightly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.